This program was produced by Knowledge at Wharton High School. For more information, visit kwhs.wharton.upenn.edu. Hi, we're here today with Janet Monge, Keeper of Skeletal Collections and Acting Curator in Charge of Physical Anthropology at the Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology. So for the past several years, what have been some of the main focuses of your research, and what places has your work brought you? Oh, a difficult question, actually, because I do a lot of different things and go a lot of different places. But the main focus of my work is really skeletal materials of various sorts. So I work with the skeletal materials that are in the Penn Museum. We have uh, huge, vast, wonderful collections. Uh, we have many researchers that come from all around the world to see the collection. So that's a part of it, but it's probably just a small part of it. The other sort of section of it is traveling to various places and looking at the skeletal materials and studying them. Uh, the pr Probably the most local one of these is the one at uh, Duffy's Cut, okay, which is in Malvern, Pennsylvania. Uh, it's yielded some skeletons thus far. It's a really interesting site. It probably represents the remains of railway workers who were uh, maybe killed, but died certainly, but maybe killed. Uh, as part of building a part of the Pennsylvania Railroad. So it's a cool site there, close by. But I also work overseas in a variety of sites. Um, a lot of my research has been in human evolution, so I go to look at a lot of fossils from around the world. Today I'm planning a trip in December to go to Zagreb in Croatia that has the biggest collection of Neanderthal fossils. And I think in January I probably will be going to Kenya, which is a sort of the homeland of human history. So it's a it's an exciting place for, for me to go and for anybody probably who's ever visited there. The University of Pennsylvania Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology received a three-year $1.7 million contributing grant from the National Science Foundation, the largest grant the museum has ever received. Part of the money went to fund the museum's traveling show, Surviving the Body of Evidence. What did the exhibition present to viewers and how was the information displayed? Uh, actually, in fact, it is an exhibit about evolution and evolutionary process, and we decided to take a, a completely different tactic. I'm sure that probably most of your listeners have been in museums and looked at you know some evolutionary history of some form of life. They might have been dinosaurs, and you know could have been you know really any of a number of things, and they could have seen an exhibit, for example, on human evolution. But we decided that there are many good museums that do exhibits on human evolution. So we wanted to move away from that a bit okay, and really contextualize humans and human history and human evolution. So the focus of the exhibit, um, and I think we were pretty successful on this, was really to show the consequences of evolutionary processes in our everyday life. And to also give an indication of the functionality of evolution and that it is not predictable. So we give them kind of a teaser about thinking of the future of humans on the planet. But, of course, we can't predict that fully into the future. And we had a very good time with it in a sense that, you know, we asked people to really kind of witness themselves and all of their, you know, issues, all of their problems, all of their you know, good points, too, from an evolutionary perspective. And then to kind of, uh, by doing that, allow them to really embody evolutionary process, I think in ways that, you know, evolution exhibits have not challenged people to do in the past. The traveling show will soon begin its national tour. Has working on the tour spurred further research? 
Uh, it's moving around the country right now. I mean, it's one of these kind of shows. I'm sure you've been at many of them in different museums. The museums, for example, um, really try to take in traveling shows because even though they pay a rental fee, it's much cheaper than basically uh, than, than basically constructing a show uh, in and of themselves, you know. So it will move around all to all of these different places for, you know, really three or four months or so uh, stays in each one of these places. So what has it spurred? I mean, it certainly spurred a lot of interest in the sense that um, – it probably has spurred a lot of controversy, even in ways that I don't think that we had ever really anticipated, which is kind of cool. Because, you know, you think you know what's going to happen, and then, you know, you do it, and it has some other outcome. So right now it's at the Cleveland Natural History Museum in Cleveland, Ohio. And uh, what had happened there was one of the sort of consequences of evolutionary process on human biology that we highlight is on childbirth. And as it turns out, a very active childbirth group in Ohio objected to some of the statements we had made medically okay, about the functionality of cesarean sections and thought that they were overproduced in the United States because birth has become very sort of um, highly biomedicalized and it shouldn't be they're kind of a back to sort of natural childbirth group and they began a very hot group of um, emails to me over the course of the last couple of months and interesting I would never have thought we made controversial statements because we know in human history humans have been indeed plagued by difficulties associated with childbirth so in terms of research, of course, it allows us to always kind of think and rethink, I mean, every part of uh, the ways we actually present evolutionary process. So, yes, I mean, I would say it's like anything. It's always going to be challenging you to reevaluate a lot of those sort of basic tenets that you just, you know, assumed to be true and allowed you to move to a different plane by doing that. So it's every day. It's a, it's a challenge for us. In 2002, you established the Penn Modern Primate and Human CT Database. What enabled you to start the project, and how has the development of the Internet and technological advancement changed the way you share Great your research question. with others? Uh, you know, museums are now challenged to move into the future. And what does that mean? And how do we distribute information to a broader audience? And how do we do it more efficiently? And this was the kind of brainchild of... Um, a co-worker of mine, uh, Tom Shoneman, who's now at Indiana University. And he had the idea, and you know, we put it together, that wouldn't it be a great idea to take some of the technology, which is readily available, especially at places like Penn, where we have an amazing biomedical complex, and they contain many types of instrumentation we could never you know, possibly you know, really support in a place like a museum. So they were open to it, and what we decided to do is to spend our time CT scanning the bulk of the collections in the Penn Museum, the skeletal collections, and then making all of that available to any scholar anywhere in the world for them to use in their own research. And it's great for us because, of course, it you know gets our specimens and our name really basically on publications you know, all, all over the globe in ways that we could never possibly produce if we were just a place in Philadelphia. And we do it more cheaply and more effectively. And we also, too, then have data that's, you know, uh, uh, 
never going to go away. I mean, basically, in its digital format, it's always going to be there, okay? and it will always be available, and that's something that I think we can be super proud of. In addition to your work at Penn, you own a nonprofit small business venture that has a worldwide sales distribution to museums and universities for research and teaching, known as the Casting Project. What made you start this nonprofit? Oh, also a really good question and a real tough one to answer. I mean, in the sense that it's one of these kind of things that 25 years into it, I think to myself, why did I ever get involved in this thing? It's a big time-consuming process, but I think it's a key one. It's like anything you do in life. I mean, you know, basically you derive a lot of pleasure out of doing your job well. And the bulk of my job, of course, is teaching students and working with museum collections. But I'm kind of one of those people that had to have a little bit more, like do something else. I mean, and the something else for me was making these really accurate replicas uh, available for distribution to all kinds of educational institutions, including other museums. So we make casts, for example. If you've been in, in any exhibit, probably on human evolution, you've seen our casts. I think we should sign them. <laughs> I mean, you know, basically, because most people don't know where they come from. Um, and really, in fact, the program and project was a part of the Penn Museum for a long time. They had produced. Uh, uh, reproductions of of fossils, probably going back into the 1940s. Actually, in fact, the history is a little dim. Uh, The museum record keeping wasn't the way it is today. So, of course, it's hard for us to really sort of precisely place it in time. But what had happened was the museum had become interested in, in in the really kind of the business of producing replicas. They had started, you know, by reproducing a lot of the um, archaeological objects that you see at the museum, but they also were interested in reproducing fossils. So they actually wound up purchasing a group of molds. These are the positives which are made on the fossils from an organization in New York City and then began distributing these in this cast you know, form. And of course, what always happens in those situations, the interest, it's a, it's a labor-intensive process. It takes a very long time to train for this. So uh, it became, I guess, not feasible for them to carry on with it. So they closed that program probably in the early 1960s. My colleague and mentor at Penn at the time, Alan Mann, became very interested in revitalizing that process. So what he did is he instituted it again in 1975. I came to Penn in 1976, and he was looking for a lab manager at the time. I was a graduate student. So over the course of the next, I don't know, maybe 20 years or so, I actually learned the process. I mean, that's how long it takes to, you know, be able to go and take a really old bone and, uh, you know, cover it over with silicon and hope for the best when you pull it out of this big shell of plaster and all that kind of thing. So it takes a while to build up the confidence to do that. In any event, what happened was at that point, he... Uh, and I became much more interested in expanding the program. So we started traveling all over the world, actually making reproductions on fossils and bringing them back to Penn. And at the moment, we number probably about three, I think it's about 3,200 okay, molds made on original fossils, which is remarkable as a feat. And uh, most of the time was spent in Europe, but uh, uh, we've also molded in Australia and Africa all over the place. 
So these molds are at the Penn Museum. And of course, because they're made on original fossils like that, there's actually a really high demand for them. Uh, but they're real specialty items. They're custom made. So individuals write to us and they say, do you make this piece? We have a website too, but do you make this piece? We have a lot of specialty pieces not on our website also too. And, you know, we say yes or, you know, whatever. And then, you know, we talk about, you know, how we're going to actually produce it and the timeline we're going to produce it. If it's a real rare object, it's very expensive to produce. And so, you know, it's a, it, when I say it's time intensive, it's time intensive and labor intensive because a single piece can take us months to actually produce. So I just spent the last six months reproducing a fossil that was just excavated in um, Romania. And the thing was, it was a very fragile piece, a very difficult one to do. It's actually for an exhibit at the Smithsonian, which is opening up in January. And uh, again, kind of a challenge for me to for, for me to do it. I like working with my hands. I mean, basically, I work in classrooms most of the time. In the museum, I also work with my hands in general. But I kind of like figuring out, I, give me a good problem, and I'm a happy gal. Okay, you mentioned earlier uh, about the business side of... Um, of working in a museum, I guess, how do you grapple with, uh, with the idea of a museum being both a business and an academic institution? Uh, I think all museums are at that crossroad right now. And I would say that I'm not on that side of administration that I really kind of know the ins and outs of that process. And I think it's a big challenge and a, a huge challenge, I think, for probably every museum in the world at the present time. And so, uh, you know, eventually, they're going to have to figure out a way to, you know, sort of effectively, okay, really not only just, you know, take care of their finances, but really, you know, suit their long-term mission. What is their function into the future? And that's been a very big question. I mean, you know, what are our audiences? What do they react to? Why do we show things? I mean, those kinds of questions, I mean, I guess, you know, you might take for granted or think are intuitive, but they're actually really not. And in a world where, you know, lots of things go through media, okay, like, um, I mean, if, if you can see the great objects of the world on a, you know, a TV special, what makes the museum experience, okay, an enhancement of that or an addition to that or something more special than that? And, you know, those big issues are really kind of tough for us, okay? Then, of course, you know, people say, oh, we have to spend all this money to go there. I mean, is it really kind of justified to do that? Because, of course, they're all charging admissions, I mean, as you know, as you have to do. And you've got a family, let's say a mom and dad and a couple of kids, and, you know, that afternoon in the museum becomes, you know, $150 afternoon. Not so much at the Penn Museum, but at other museums. I mean, I've been at many that are like this. What kind of special experience okay, are those people, those families, going to have when they do walk into those doors? So it's, um, it'll be interesting to see what happens over the next 10 years. I think most of us have come to the conclusion that other media hasn't replaced that one-on-one -on -one experience. Okay? It would be like saying that all of us would be really happy being in a little you know, closet all day long doing our work. I mean, we certainly can. I mean, since everything is digitized, why, why do we have to have that one-on-one? -on -one? But... I guess we're humans. We need that social experience. And a museum is an experience not only of the objects, but it's the social context. And that's something that can't really be reproduced out of that, you know, that milieu. Um, 
We often have a vision of archaeologists and anthropologists at digs by Egyptian pyramids. While your work puts you in contact with mummies, you have also conducted research on so many other subjects. How is your work both similar and different from the work that we imagine those in your field doing? I think that most people don't imagine the... <laughs> I don't know that everybody would agree with me on this, but I know Sam would. The tedious nature of most of what we do. I think that, you know, we see the kind of the glamour points, which are shown, you know, in a variety of ways, but they don't actually follow the day-to-day when you're sitting in the lab, you know, uh, cleaning the 150th tooth or, you know, trying to make sure that you have everything sort of appropriately arranged in a storage place so it's retrievable. Um, You know, it's all of those kinds of issues that are just the normal part of the process, and I think that a lot of people don't really appreciate, and this is why Penn, I think, is so good because we want our students to do this, what it means to actually collect data. I mean, it's, it's, it's not, you know, it's not this wonderful, you know, explosive mental moment every single sort of second of the day. I mean, it takes, oh gosh, I mean, it takes just a, a huge amount of drive and motivation to get yourself, you know, sort of up and going and to do that, you know, tedious work, which is the necessary component of any research, not just at a museum, it's anywhere. And then probably even kind of uh, more frustrating is that you can do all of that work and it may come to nothing. So it's the constant rethinking, the constant adjustments, the constant, you know, sort of tossing things around that are just the normal process of being a scientist. And I don't think it's easy or glamorous and sometimes not even very much fun. I guess, what made you decide then to become a physical anthropologist? And do you see the way anthropologists conduct research changing in the near future? Uh, good, good, good questions, too. I, um, I, I didn't have the GWOW moment, as some people do. I actually have some students who come up to me and they'll say, like Sam, but other students, too, they'll say that, you know, from the moment they remember having a thought, that they wanted to be an anthropologist. You know, I, I, from the moment I had a thought, I wanted to be a plumber. I don't know what it made me go on to this other kind of a course, but I, I may be digging in the dirt as the commonality of all of this. I'm not sure. <laughs> but, you know, I, don't, I didn't have the GWAL moment. Okay? I mean, in a sense, I had the experience, which is uh, probably as profound, but it's not in the same sort of way you think about that moment. And that is, when I started to take anthropology classes, I realized, I mean, this is kind of goofy unless you really had that experience yourself. And I think a lot of people don't have this experience. I, I knew that I was always an anthropologist. You know what I mean? It was like I was a born anthropologist. It was very natural. It wasn't something, I mean, not that you don't have to work at things, but... I had a kind of a natural flow into it, and I knew it was something that I wanted to do. And for a very long time, I refused to accept that. So I wandered around in a lot of different majors and, you know, just always kind of looking for that place that I thought was going to be the place for me because, you know, I came from a background where people didn't do things like anthropology. I'm sure they couldn't even pronounce anthropology. I mean, they had no idea what an anthropologist did. 
So, you know, for me it was, you know, and now I have to explain this, you know, to the group of relatives and the neighbors who are saying, you're studying what? <laughs> what do you do again? I mean, like, including you know, some, some of my immediate family members who at the time were, you know, thinking, gosh, I mean, I thought you went to school and you became a doctor or a lawyer or a dentist or this or that. I mean, what do you come out and do when you're an anthropologist? Like, you know, sit in a lab, stare at things, you know, dig in the dirt. I mean, is this what adults do? So it was, it was, I mean, it was, it was just one of those things that I couldn't help but to do. I mean, and it wasn't like I just said, okay, everything is great. I'm just going to do it. I really, I've soul searched to see if that was the thing that I wanted to do. And I have no regrets. I don't think it's been an especially easy time. I mean, as a lot of careers are, um, are not like, basically. And what happened with anthropology is, you know, you go to school forever. You come out and you are in, you know, almost like a kind of a, um, an intern experience for a long time. It's a it it it's it's a struggle, okay, to be able to keep up the energy that's you know, sort of necessary to achieve the educational base to let you do it. But if you persevere and you love something, it's like no problem. It really isn't. Well, thank you very much, Janet, for speaking with us today. The total pleasure, Sherry.